AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for May 24th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Hi. How's it going? Good. Good. Good to see you again. And uh, here we have John Hogaboom here, right here in Bedminster. The last survivor, alone <laughs> last on the survivor. couch. Yeah, we have a close-knit <laughs> group here today. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, we're going to jump right into it. And uh, first of all, I guess let's talk a little bit about WPAD. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what WPAD is, and then. So we'll yeah, explain. WPAD is uh, Web Proxy Automatic Discovery. I think it is something like that. Auto Discovery. Makes sense. <laughs> so basically, um, the gist is when you, in your browser, you can set up automatically discover my proxy settings. Mm -hmm. And what your machine will do is when um, it fires up the browser, it will try to find a device uh, by the name of WPAD. Um, and then it might try to stitch on WPAD.MyCompanyName, you know, whatever domain name you have. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if there was those answer, it knows that that's who it needs to talk to to get the Windows proxy automatic configuration. And I think what it does is it goes and tries to retrieve a file um, at that via HTTP slash WPAD.DAT, a DAT mm -hmm. file that contains some configuration stuff, and then it knows how to talk to a proxy. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, and, and if, if I may interrupt, the significance of that is that anything you do through your web browser is going to get routed through that proxy right, ultimately. Right, right. And a lot of enterprises use proxies. So inside your enterprise, you've got all your users there, and you kind of, kind of force them through proxies. So that you could do some, you know, security protections and categorizing whatnot. of URLs, right, blocking things of bad like that. Ones, things so like that. make yep. sure block people from going to places they shouldn't be going to, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So Verisign uh, put out a paper about this vulnerability, and really what it's about is if I'm in a company, so maybe I have a small enterprise and I don't have a domain name that I'm registered, or I want to have just my internal network have its own domain name. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of people were doing out there is they might say, like let's say I had uh, Hogaboom Industries, right? Internally, on my internal network that nobody else can talk to except my internal users in my enterprise, I would use hogaboom.local or hogaboom.global as a top level domain name. Mm -hmm. And that'd have all my machines under that. And that way I don't have to go register them out on the internet. It's just for me internally, for my internal network. Uh, namespace. And well, you would expect that if you were on the internet, you'd just get an NX, you would try to do a lookup and the D DNS is going to respond. Right, and we're going to talk about what actually happens right. there when you take your machine home, because that's kind of the problem here. So a lot of people were using things like .local, mm -hmm. .global, um, there's a bunch of like .network, but recently, within the past few years, so, um, the I guess whoever the domain registrars are out there. I can. They, the I can, right. They um, open these up for uh, as generic top-level domains so people can register them out on the internet. So now we have a situation where maybe I've started, I've been using for years, so the past 20 years I've been using hogaboom.global as my internal network uh, top-level domain for all of my machines inside my enterprise, but somebody out there on the internet went and registered hogaboom.global because they happen to know that that's what we use. Before an attacker gets a hold of your domain, the first thing that would happen, you know, I take my laptop home or I go to a coffee shop or whatever, 
and my machine's still going to try to look for wped.hogabloom.global in order mm -hmm. to figure out what is the proxy that I need to talk to. Now, normally you'd hit a DNS root server or a DNS server, and he'd come back and say, that's not registered. My machine wouldn't use that proxy. It wouldn't set up proxy settings. It would probably just go straight out to the internet, I think right. is what would happen, because it couldn't get proxy uh, information. But a bad actor, knowing that, could go register that domain, the hogabloom.global, register the wpad.hogabloom.global, and now they can do a man-in-the-middle attack. So um, no matter where they are, all they have to do is register the domain, set up some infrastructure to act as a proxy server mm -hmm. to intercept. And now when my machine or my, my, one of my enterprise users' machines goes off network onto the internet and uh, uh, from home or whatever, they're going to start going to this rogue proxy server. Right, right. So that's basically the situation. It's mostly impacting home users or users who take their stuff off network or off mm -hmm. the enterprise network, and then it's still trying to hit those internal right. domain names that, uh, that some bad actor is now registered because they're allowed to now. Mm -hmm. They have some recommendations. And also, I guess on a previous slide, I did mention there's only four um, private top-level domains that people can actually use. And that's an RFC 2606, but they're really not very good ones. Like, I would not want to use this in my internal network. Right. You can use .test, .example, .invalid, and .localhost. Only .localhost is one that I would find even remotely acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones just don't sound like ones I would want to use. Perhaps I should add .private or something. Yeah, like something like that, or yeah. yeah internal or something or whatever. Dot, don't mess up my proxy. Right, right. <laughs> so they do recommend some mitigations that you can take here. Uh, you know, consider disabling automatic proxy discover altogether. Um, a lot of companies, what they'll do is instead of using WPAD, the automatic proxy configuration, there's another option where you can say, I'm going to spe specify a specific it's proxy specific, and right. you can put a URL in for your proxy configuration mm -hmm. for your company in there and you could use um, uh, you know Windows policy group policy to mm -hmm. push that down to all your machines well and, and you're gonna want to use a registered domain name in that case as you well. yes so you'd want to do that as well because otherwise you have the same issue right mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually in here somewhere <laughs> yeah so I, that's the next one they say consider using a fully qualified domain name from global DNS as the root for your enterprise so use mm -hmm. a real one that somebody else can't hijack that you're using internal, but someone external is trying mm -hmm. to hijack it. So if you own it on the outside, on the internet, then you have control of it as well. Mm -hmm. Actually, another good suggestion is to configure firewalls and proxies to log and block outbound requests for WPAD.dat, because that really shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, ideally, it should not happen. So that's pretty easy to do with most IDSs. Um, you could do a snort rule for that kind of thing, or most systems you can configure mm -hmm. something to look for that. Or even with your proxy, you could do that as well. Um, although if it's, I don't know if it'd be going through the proxy if it's looking for a proxy, but uh, in any event. Mm -hmm. uh, identify expected WPAD network traffic, monitor your public namespace. So that's a good suggestion as to, if you are using one of these domains that has recently been allowed for people to register globally, but you're using it internally, you might want to go out there and register yourself on the internet before somebody else does. Right and or monitor to make sure somebody else isn't trying to hijack it or hasn't already done that. Yeah, well, that's, um, uh, that, that perhaps raises the uh, broader concept of defensive domain name registration. That is, right. if you're a potential target, you probably want to make sure that you're registering domain names that are similar to your own, perhaps for brand management, but also perhaps to reduce the 
amount of uh, exposure you might have to a phishing attack where right. you know domain names might look similar to yours and somebody could right some somebody could use that yeah. to you know lure people to Try go to, make to that it look like URL an enterprise and application make it look like it is you or whatever but it's mm -hmm. really not okay and i did do a little uh, analysis through some passive dns you know data that is out there on there that you can get um, there is some interesting <laughs> Domains registered of this nature, where mm -hmm. it's like wpad.somecompanyname.global uh, or wpad.somecompanyname.us.local or things like that. There are some interesting ones out there that look a little shady to me. So uh, perhaps not suggestive that some of this activity is actually happening. Uh, may, yeah, maybe you know the the advisory is. Uh, instigated by some right some observations some that they've, they've seen as well so it does okay. look like there are some cases of that going on mm -hmm. uh, based on some of the company names you can kind of infer mm -hmm. who's being targeted here uh, mm -hmm. so it's interesting so you might okay. want to go people might want to be interested in digging around in uh, some of the passive DNS sources that are available because uh, they might find interesting stuff as well all right that nature. yeah you know it's uh, it's it's often difficult to determine whether some of these advisories I think they're you know the the organizations that are like US cert they're trying to protect the privacy of organizations that may have been a victim and uh, and so it's, it really is uh, sometimes a challenge of whether they're talking about a theoretical vulnerability or if they're talking about some potentially real attack activity. Yeah, this and looks like real attack activity yeah, based on what I'm seeing here. Yeah. Okay, very good. Given attack activity, Jim, let's go over to you. And uh, I guess uh, there's an article here covering some of the recent malware trends and uh, some interesting observations. Yeah, this one uh, was kind of interesting. I first noticed it in, on the IT Security Guru blog, but then I went back and looked at the original press release from Checkpoint. Uh, basically, Checkpoint does a monthly update of, of what they call their threat index. I hadn't been looking at it a whole lot recently, but uh, just this past week, they released their update for the trends they saw in April. And there were a couple of things that, that jumped out at me um, that I just, I couldn't resist bringing them up here because, you know, for a long time, port 445 before 23 was at the top of our uh, our pie charts every week in the internet weather. It was 445 that was always at the top of our pie charts. And one of the things that you often say is, you know, there's a lot of lingering Conficker out there. Well, Conficker is still the number one thing threat and their threat index mm. and you know the conficker has been around for it's been more than 10 years now hasn't it something mm -hmm. like that yeah and number two on their list is salady which has gone through a few iterations but that's been around since 2003 initially mm. number three on their list for april was zero access which you know we haven't talked about in the internet weather recently and maybe maybe next week we should take another look at that and see how mm -hmm. that's doing. But they also have a separate uh, list of the mobile malware families that so they're Jim, seeing the most of. Before you go on, are you sure you're looking at this year's... <laughs> Absolutely. It's dated May 17th, 2016. Okay. Top three on there have been around for, it seems like, forever. Yeah. So before we go on here, but I think it, it's, it's perhaps uh, uh, worthy of observing that you know, we've been reporting a number of things, and those have not been at the top of our list. Um, now, we're not doing a, 
you know, a numerical study on what the top threats are. But part of the reason that we have not been reporting those is partly because Conficker has not really constituted a real threat. Yes, there may be a lot of infections out there, but it hasn't really constituted a real threat to organizations. There have not been any known or reported crimes associated with Conficker that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Either. Yeah, and so, um, and then similarly, Zero Access was one where there was a takedown activity and they believed that they had pretty much eradicated it. There was a white flag raised associated yeah, with Zero Access. Yeah, I mean, it still resurged after that again, I think. It, it, but there, um, I, I was going to just uh, say that there was some activity. I think it was click fraud or something along yeah, those well, lines. Yeah, well, it was always involved in click fraud activity. Right. Um, but so. it did go up and down and up and down, and I really, we should take another close look at it um, yep. because uh, I believe there's still quite a few bots out there, but I'm not quite yep. sure how, how it measures to how it yep. used to be. So I just, I just wanted to interrupt briefly and put a little bit of a, you know, a context or perhaps a little bit of balance against these and um, not to take away from the next part of this, which I think is perhaps uh, more significant and more important to consider. I agree, and it's it's not clear to me how how Checkpoint counts their their numbers here and determines their index. Mm -hmm. They did say that they identified two thousand unique malware families in in the month of April, which was a fifty percent increase from from March, mm -hmm. which means they're seeing a lot of new families out there. But they, they also listed their, their top three mobile malware threats in April. Mm -hmm. And at the top of that list was Hummingbad, which I don't remember whether we talked about it on the show, but it's, a, it's an Android malware that roots the phone and then installs uh, fraudulent applications and potentially key loggers and all that kind of stuff. And that was at the top of the list of mobile threats, but it also moved into the top ten of all recognized attacks in the month of April, which is the first time that, that they had had a mobile threat reach their top 10 overall. Mm. Their second on the, of the top three mobiles was uh, was one that I had not heard of, but I haven't been paying close attention, IOP or IOP. I, I don't know much about it other than it's a, it installs a lot of ad software and that kind of thing. And number three on their list was Xcode Ghost, which was the uh, one we had talked about last fall. It was identified in September as a compromised version of the iOS developer platform code Xcode. Mm -hmm. And it had been available in China. It had been pulled from, you know, you know it was not available in any officials sources, but it is still apparently uh, going strong. Yeah, it was pulled from their app store in September, I, I guess. Um, but that was the number three mobile threat this month. So I, I presume this is a case where the apps are still out there, even though uh, I believe that they had done, made an effort to try to identify those and pull them from the app store if they were in, you know, had that, um, that uh I guess that there was a back door associated with the library. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's my guess as to what's going on there. But yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah, so I, I suspect that there were some apps that were still developed, you know, or maybe some developers, you know, never got the corrected version, the the unrooted version to replace the 
the Trojaned one, um, and are still potentially developing apps using the bad version. I don't know. Okay. The the biggest thing that got me out of this was a the their their top three being old stuff, and b the the uh, the one Android one that was just identified in February, jumping into the top ten of uh, of all the attacks that they saw in April. So those are the interesting things I saw out of there. If folks want to go take a look at their their press release and their uh, story there, uh, it's an interesting read. Yeah, you know, it's a it's and. I jumped in, with, you know, being a little bit critical of the, uh, of the at least the first three that were listed there, but I think it's also uh, very valuable to get different uh, organizations' perspectives because each organization has a different vantage point and, um, you know, the opportunity to try to understand what those vantage points might be. You know, I was just really kind of uh, searching in my mind here, uh, sort of speculating that perhaps Checkpoint being basically you know, a, a, their primary product being firewall uh, software, uh, perhaps has a view from an enterprise point of view, mm-hmm. which would be a very unique vantage point. Like, you know, our perspective tends to be from the internet point of view, but uh, if you were operating a firewall and perhaps blocking port 445 outbound to the internet, which would be a good policy to do, uh, they could possibly be getting a lot of, uh, you know, firewall denies because of config or infections that are internal right. to an enterprise and perhaps some enterprises aren't aware of. Again, purely speculative and where, you know, those uh, numbers might be coming from, but uh, certainly one that would be significant, uh, in, especially if you're operating an enterprise. Absolutely. Like I said, I, it's not clear to me how, how they put this together, mm-hmm. but it is, uh, as you said, interesting to see uh, different perspectives on, on the attack activity that's out there. All right. Very good. So, John, let's go to you here. And, you know, I'm, I'm recalling back when we first started talking about IoT mm-hmm. and one of the first devices, actually it wasn't the first, but it was one of the early devices that we had seen was a network attached storage device. Yeah, that the had a Synology disk station manager. Right. And uh, I remember attached. port 5000 came up and yep. it really, you know, went high on the radar for a period of time and then seemed to settle itself out. But it looks like perhaps there's a new... Uh, there's always a new Internet of Insecure Things device out there. So uh, this is just another, yet another story. Uh, LG has a product. Uh, it's the N1A1 Network Attached Storage. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with Network Attached Storage, it's basically a device. It's got a hard drive on it. It's got some kind of user interface. It lets you store files and access them from the network. Instead of having to set up a whole machine mm-hmm. to act as a file server, you can just kind of have one of these little embedded devices. But it is um, a whole machine on this. It is, but it's it's a more compact version. Yeah. It's not a whole full, op, you know, not Missing like a full monitor, Windows operating yeah. system or a whole, you know, robust Linux operating system. But it's got an embedded kind of uh, uh, OS on there to handle mm-hmm. the operations. In any event, they um, <clears throat> there is a web interface. Um, uh, as part of this, and there's some software on top as part of that web, web interface called FamilyCast, which is kind of their way of allowing you to share the content that's on this device, uh, either videos or pictures and things like that. It's a front end to handle or help with that uh, mm-hmm. function. And there's a vulnerability in it that um, most of the PHP scripts on the device are not doing any kind of session authentication, even though they are asking you for a login ID and password it's very easy to bypass it. Mm. Um, Point in fact, there's actually a really good video. So this actually comes from Search Lab, a Hungarian um, research, security research organization. 
uh, or at least this research came from them. Mm -hmm. And they have a YouTube video that kind of shows them walking through how to do some of these exploits on one of these devices. And they use uh, Burp Suite, which is a tool that I think Matt had talked about on the show to kind of do some of this type of um, web-based uh, kind of pen testing of your uh, applications. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to watch him walk through it and show you exactly how he's doing it. Um, there's also a hidden uploader that he found on there. It's a web page that allows you to upload and download files to the device. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can do that unauthenticated, uh, as all these functions you can. So it could theoretically, someone could pivot this and turn it, you know, a bad actor could find these if they're attached to the net, uh, internet, mm -hmm. use them as malware drop points or command and control things right. of that nature. But surely none of these are connected directly to the internet. Well, actually, there's quite a few connected to the internet. It's not a ton. <laughs> surprise, um, But, you know, I think they said roughly around 5,000 or so mm -hmm. of these are connected to the internet. And I believe there was one country in particular. I want to say Brazil, but I could be wrong. Uh, that might be the other one that we're going to talk about later. But in any event, there is some concentrations in some parts of the world that have more of these than others. 5,000, when you think about it, isn't a ton. Mm -hmm. um, but it's enough that somebody could do something with them uh, uh, because it's very easy. It's very trivial to, to bypass. This mm. is very low barrier to entry to, to exploit this. And the problem is, like we talk about a lot with these IoT type of devices, is that um, a patch is available, and I think they've had a patch available for this since last year sometime, uh, late in the fall of last year. But there's no real way to notify users. Users like to deploy, and I, I'm, I'm a violator of this myself. I'll get some one of these devices and put it on my network, and I don't think all the time that I gotta update it every month mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, so that's why a lot of these things persist out there. Fortunately, some of these devices nowadays, uh, at least when you log into them, will let you know when there's mm -hmm. new firmware. Yeah. Uh, some of them have auto-update features, but I still think that's a little bit behind the curve. There's only very few of those that I'm aware of that do that auto-update type of function. Well, and, so. and this isn't exactly something you'd be, well, perhaps in this case, you would have a web interface or something that you'd be logging into yeah, there and is. could potentially yep. do that. There are a lot of devices that don't really even have a web interface like that, so it makes it really difficult to notify the owner that there's something like right, that. So that how, something you know, wrong. For example, how often do you actually log into your home router? You know, it's very, very rare to do example, that. So yeah. It really needs a, a more robust notification capability around that. So. Uh, all very good point. So, so that's why, even though there is a patch available, a lot of it hasn't been applied to the existing base. And I think this might even be, um, I don't think they're continuing to make this product. It's probably like out of mm -hmm. whatever, not end out of, of warranty, or, but end yeah, of life. End yeah. of so um, whatever's out there is out there. Hopefully people will find out about it and patch the ones, these 5,000 or so that are out there. Well, you've heard it on Threat Track. I'm sure the most of the world is pretty yes, much... Every, if we could just get those 5,000 people to watch the show. <laughs> just get those 5,000 people <laughs> and everything will be solved. Okay, so uh, Jim, I guess uh, perhaps a little more of a positive story here. Uh, Microsoft has uh, changed a little feature in Windows. Tell us a little about it. Found out about this one from uh, Brian Krebs, Krebs on security on his blog. One of the features of Windows 10 that, that a lot of us were not real happy about was what uh, Microsoft was calling Wi-Fi Sense. It was a feature of Windows 10 that essentially allowed you to share access to Wi-Fi networks that you had connected to. Basically, it would share credentials that would allow you, any of your contacts mm -hmm. to 
also connect to those same Wi-Fi hotspots. This was a feature that you know a number of people were concerned with, and Microsoft apparently has decided, but without being real public about announcing it, um, Brian said that it was uh, almost a footnote in the Windows 10 experience blog. They've decided that instead of being enabled by default, they're going to have it disabled by default. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is a good thing. Microsoft said that the reason for doing it was that it was low usage, low demand, and they figured their resources were better used elsewhere. They didn't say anything about the about the security or privacy concerns, which was my biggest problem with it from the beginning. But whatever their reasons, I think this is a good move. When you first upgraded to Windows 10, there it took you through a series of steps to personalize the experience or something, mm -hmm. uh, they called it. And it was always possible to, to disable it from there, or you could dig through the control panels and, and find where these options were and turn them off one by one. But for, uh, going forward, um, this one will be disabled by default. If you've already got Windows 10, uh, you may need to go into the settings and turn this off yourself still. Mm -hmm. But Well, that's, uh, you know, I think one of the, this kind of highlights a little bit of a, uh, a challenge that I think most people have is that there are so many darn features. It, it really is a difficult balance between the notion of convenience and the notion of, uh, of good security. And to have the options of be able to turn things on or turn things off or, you know, deciding which ones are the defaults, which are the most appropriate for uh, most users is really a tricky proposition for any organization. So um, it appears that Windows has kind of listened to the criticism and is responding to that. Uh, whether they're really acknowledging that way, that's at least my interpretation of the situation. And uh, that generally is a good sign. All right, very good. So, uh, John, let's go back to you and uh, so much for good signs. Yeah, uh, yet another uh, Internet of Insecure Things device. Um, so similar to the last one we talked about with LG, Ubiquiti, um, they're a uh, network appliance vendor. Uh, they have a bunch of these uh, Wi-Fi routers, basically, mm -hmm. uh, and the AirOS brand that they kind of, it's like a sub-brand of Ubiquiti. And there's a bunch of these different uh, types that they have out there. They have a bunch of different uh, models. So I would reference you to the article to find out whether your uh, particular model is vulnerable to yeah, this. Yeah, this, this, is, this is, was an issue with specific ones, is that correct? It's specific families of ones, it seemed right. like, but I don't, there were many different, I would say like six or seven different product model paths right. that were uh, affected by this. Okay. Uh, the long and short is it's probably they all shared a very common code base of the web front end. So the web front end of the ROS uh, router uh, that is vulnerable to this. It allows an unauthenticated attacker to do an arbitrary file upload. So without having to be logged in or anything, I can upload a file to this device. But what it does is it logs on or it, it um, uploads a file, but the file it's uploading is overwriting the password file on the machine. Okay. So what this does is once it gets on the router itself, it, um, it changes the password that way. Then it can log in via SSH. It deploys a copy of its malware up to that device, runs it, and then that malware, what it does, it goes and scans the network, they say. What that means 
and how far that spreads, if it's just the local or if it's going out to the internet a little bit, I'm not quite sure. Uh, they didn't give details in the article, but it looks for additional devices that it could compromise. If it can, it will do the same thing. You know, that's its propagation mm -hmm. method. At some point, it, it determines that I've got no more work to do. It deletes itself mm -hmm. and goes away, but it leaves that back door with that login ID and password there. So somebody right. could come back, a bad actor could come back and use that device, SSH into it and do whatever they want. Right. Which makes it more difficult to track who might be infected at that point because you'd have right. to actually be going out and doing probes to find and see if those back doors are actually exposed. Right, exactly, yep. This, again, is a flaw that was actually fixed back in July of last year, 2015. But again, most users don't know that there mm -hmm. was a problem with the router and they don't go to log in just like you said. How often do you log into your home router and update it? This is one of these kind of Soho home router type of platform things. So the frequency that a, an end user would log into it to find out if there's patches that need to be applied is probably a low number mm -hmm. of times that they would do that. Um, they're actually, Ubiquiti did release a new patch on the heels of this announcement that does some additional protections beyond just the patch that they put out to block this file upload vulnerability. Mm -hmm. They have a new patch that does some additional things and they describe it in their, um, their blog post, which you can get to from the- Is link. there anything that closes the back door? Uh, I think that's part of that new patch, okay. tries to find out if that back door is in there and get rid of it. But I would refer you to go take a look at that because I think that, and it might be doing some additional things as well to, to help protect that. So uh, yet another one to look out for. I think there's quite a few more of these out there than the 5,000 that we saw with the LG mm -hmm. network attached storage. More I know the case, yes. I've seen on many occasions these ROS devices um, uh, out there participating in other botnets, whether it's related to this or if it's just other right. people who have brute forced the SSH password uh, could be could be just that. Yeah, I think in some cases we had seen where the there was an exploit being performed to, and I don't recall the specifics of exploit, it might have been a, a weak password guessing or something like that, but then using that to enable SSH access from the internet or something along those lines. Did, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, for, there's so many of these right, I don't well, remember either, but you're uh, probably don't right. Don't take my word for it, it was something along those lines that... Uh, um, there are a lot of these, guys, so these devices also, they have a default login ID and password which they're both the same mm -hmm. thing. The login ID and the password, or the username and password are the same thing, and they're very short. Mm -hmm. And you could guess, like, if you go to the manual, find it. A lot of people deploy these things on the network mm -hmm. or on the internet. They leave that SSH exposed or the web interface exposed. Right. Why? I don't know. With the default password that it ships with. So I think that's how a lot of these particular ones get scooped up otherwise, mm -hmm. besides this file upload vulnerability. Yeah. But um, That default password for the Ubiquiti devices was in the, the top 10 when I did the last, when I did our last look at the passwords we were seeing in our honeypots. And at the Internet Storm Center, I know it was number seven for the month of April in, in their list of password guessing that they saw. So, yeah, that's, that default password also needs to be changed. Yep, for certain. All right, very good. So, you know, one of the things I think is probably worth pointing out here is that uh, in these stripped down embedded OS things, one of the things that makes it the uh, embedded Linux is they basically are stripping out user level permissions. And so when you log in as anybody, you basically have root access privileges. So nor under normal circumstances, you wouldn't be able to overwrite or even access Etsy password as a normal right. user. But in this particular case, 
it allows that escalation because there really aren't any user level controls. Yeah, usually the web administrative interface on these things is executing as a privileged user that mm -hmm. can read and write pretty much anything on the file system. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're right. That's just yep. probably for convenience from a programmer standpoint. Yeah, it's absolutely. Be, it's part know. of just stripping down the thing so it can run on a smaller processor, doing less checks, and yeah. as an unfortunate consequence, makes it more vulnerable to, uh, you know, more significant escalations in the attacks that are that can be right. performed. So. That NAS one that we were talking about previously, that did not. The login that you had um, did not give you privileged access. Mm -hmm but he actually shows how you can escalate your privileges to admin on the device Not really. by okay. using that, um, using Burp Suite and some of these tools to, right. to bypass right. it even further, but anyway. Okay. All right, well, uh, another sig significant observation here, and uh, I guess on that same theme, we'll take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here, and the first item here is scan sources and probes on port 6379 TCP, and uh, this was reported by Matt last week in okay. the Internet Weather Report. We have talked about this, uh, this particular application sometime in the past. It's associated with the Redis database, which is a, basically an in-memory database. I think, John, you had some uh, perhaps some past experience it's with this. familiar with level. it, but I don't right. really, I never used it, but I, it does sound familiar to me. Yeah, so, you know, it's to allow a lot of high performance things. I've seen it associated with some, uh, some big data platforms for perhaps doing some local uh, caching of data and being able to uh, increase the performance of certain analysis functions. In any case, what we're seeing here, and, and as uh, Matt had reported, there was a significant increase in the amount of scanning activity as well as the number of sources that are performing that scanning activity. So looking at the top graph, basically what we're seeing are the number of probes Actually, and combined with that, it's a line graph, so there's the number of probes as well as the number of packets associated with those probes. Now, the significance here, and, and I should uh, make a little more clarification, we generally count a flow as a probe. And uh, basically, that's a, uh, a connection that's made from a unique source address to a unique destination address on a unique source and destination port. So all of those things have to be the same in order for it to be considered part of the same flow. This is a case where it's relatively rare. You see there's scanning probe, you know, those spikes of probing activity that take place on this port and have been taking place for some time. But as you see where it correlates with the, uh, the graph below, which is actually showing the number of sources that are doing that scanning activity, you can see that there is a separation between the number of flows and the number mm -hmm. of packets associated with those flows. Basically what it means is that in this particular set of activity, there are multiple tries that are taking place. There are multiple packets that are being exchanged as a part of that activity. It's in that really one flow. In that one flow activity, right. yeah. Okay. And, and that's a relatively unusual set of activity. You can see in other parts of the activity there, which is fairly typical, that you see a very strong correlation. It's basically for a given address, one packet sent to see if it, uh, if it responds, and then they move on, whereas it appears there's some sort of retry here. So I'm not sure if that indicates this is some of the amateur activity or something along those lines, but it, um, you know, it definitely is originating from a botnet. You can see that in terms of the uh, amount of activity that took place, that is the number of sources that are performing that activity. Upwards around, oh, at the peak, uh, close to about 26, 27,000 sources that we identified on an hourly basis, and I'm sure that the, uh, if we were to accumulate over the course of a day, it was probably a larger number. So digging into this just a little bit more here, I thought it would be useful to take a look at what the geographic distribution of this activity is. 
This is just looking at the top 5,000 addresses. There were significantly more. There's, as I said, at peak on an order of about uh, 27 or 28,000 source addresses associated with this. Looking at the top 5,000 addresses, really heavy density in China and, and uh, in Eastern Asia. Uh, pretty heavy density in Europe. Not so much in the United States. We see some uh, actually in the, uh, in the middle of uh, South America as well. Even some in Australia and you know some other outlying areas, but I mean there is some in the United States, but not all that much. So that's a significant demographic, in my opinion, very unusual. Now we did see this kind of profile with those Netus routers, with one exception. That is, uh, in this case, we're not seeing much in India. There's some right. there. But uh, with the Netus routers, you know, the back door, we'll talk about that a little bit later if you're not familiar with it. But with the Netus routers, we had seen uh, more density in India as well. So I'm not sure that there's any relationship between those two, but there definitely is some sort of bias in this activity. So I just thought I'd uh, point that out. Now, just to take this one step further, I took a, uh, a look in Shodan to see how many mm -hmm. of these Redis databases were accessible from the internet. It didn't find 26 or 27,000 of them, but Shodan doesn't necessarily know everything that's out on the internet either. It did find on the order of about 7,000 of those uh, databases exposed to the internet in China and about uh, 5,800 or so in the United States. And uh, there are a number of other countries that were listed. Uh, those just happened to be the top two. And there was a vulnerability associated with this report that was, excuse me, this port that was reported and uh, actually June last year, June 2015, so a little less than a year ago. And this was uh, actually uh, vulnerability 2015-2335. Uh, and this was actually a, uh, a arbitrary code execution vulnerability that did not require authentication. So there is a chance that this is an activity to, uh, to um, find those databases and to uh, perhaps exploit them, perhaps for filtration purposes or perhaps to use those systems for other purposes. Not really sure at this point. But nevertheless, if you are using Redis in any of your applications, you will want to take a look at that, make sure that you're not unnecessarily exposing access to that database from the internet and uh, have put correct controls into place. Next item here, scan probes on 57769 TCP. We actually reported on this two weeks ago in the uh, Internet Weather Report, and it appears to be consistent with the activity that we saw back then. The activity is very suggestive of a DDoS attack, but it's the backscatter associated with denial of service attacks. Uh, we're seeing consistently SYN ACK packets, it would basically be the response of uh, a SYN flood, implying that the uh, because we're seeing it toward a number of IP addresses that the uh, the attack was actually a spoofed source TCP attack. The uh, target in this particular case, which appears to be the source of the scanning activity, is a single IP address in China, so they would be the target of this denial of service attack. The port that they would be being attacked on was port 8081 TCP, which in this case appears to be the source of the scanning activity that is the backscatter of that activity. In this case, also multiple packets per flow, again, with the exception of the example I just talked about a little bit earlier, it's not typical to see multiple packets per flow, uh, but in this particular case, um, being a denial of service attack, it's not unusual to see uh, a situation like that. So I'm, uh, I'm sticking with the original theory that this is backscattered from a denial of service attack. 
Next activity here is uh, scan sources on port 20, excuse me, 4028 TCP. This we have talked about before, and yeah. John, maybe you have a quick comment because this is. Well, I mean, I don't have any comments other than what we talked about before, which is way back when, maybe a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. there had been associ some association with this 4028 TCP in the Light Hydra right. binet. Light Hydra is a family of malware that runs on these embedded Linux devices. Um, it's pretty prevalent when you do find, you know, when you do find an embedded Linux device that's compromised, mm -hmm. it's usually a variant of Light Hydra mm -hmm. or one of those. When we looked at the scan sources, you know, when it, whenever this first started up again, it is a bunch of these home routers that are of that same ilk, right. you know. Uh, so it's very likely that it's related to that, but uh, I don't know what is listening on 4028 TCP that is that they're going after here. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, if, my, if I understood correctly, it was some sort of a backdoor associated with a button or something so. along those yeah, lines. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. So uh, it's still a little bit of a mystery to us, and, um, but the, uh, clearly this is botnet activity. What we're looking at, again, is sources that are doing this scan activity. That is counting the number of sources up on the order of about, you know, on the order of about 2,000 or so. It does have strong indications of botnet activity. You see this sort of sawtooth yeah. pattern that we see, generally indicative of commands that have been issued to the botnet. And perhaps if they lose their command and control or if the uh, no new commands have been submitted as the uh, devices complete their task, they basically go offline. And we also are seeing some consistent cases where perhaps the command and control is lost entirely, a couple of cases where it completely blacks out in terms of its activity, perhaps suggesting that the command and control server had been taken down or it was disrupted for some reason. And, uh, or even maybe the botnet operator commanded the devices to stop doing the scanning activity and they all shut off at the same time and then resume their activity at the same time. So uh, those are all very consistent signs of uh, this being botnet activity. Taking a look at the uh, pie charts here, the top 10 most probe ports at the top of the list, port 23, surprise, surprise, followed by port 22 TCP. We just talked about a potential target the associated routers, with the yeah. uh, SSH, followed by 53 UDP, not terribly unusual looking for DNS servers, and then 25 TCP. I will point out that there was a, basically a little bit of a spike activity on port 25, followed by 1433 TCP, and then uh, that's uh, Microsoft SQL database, 80 TCP web, and then 21 TCP. This one ju jumped up quite a bit, that's FTP. We will take a closer look at that one. And then uh, 445, associated with the Conficker, we talked about earlier, 3389 remote desktop protocol, and last but not least on this list, uh, 443 TCP. There's, uh, uh, encrypted web access. And then to looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, again, port 23 at the top of the list. Notably, port 53413 UDP has dropped down significantly in the, uh, the ranks. It's usually number two on this list. So we're gonna take a look at those two. Uh, first looking at port, port 23 at the top, the number of probes at the bottom, the number of sources doing those probes. And uh, we can see over the last week or so, we've been uh, seeing an increase in activity relative to what we had been reporting. So uh, I think we had kind of expected or predicted this, that uh, there is a uh, activity to try to revive some of the botnets that maybe have been tailing off over a period of time that evidence is showing here. And then looking at scam probes on port 21, TCP, that's FTP. Now you see the uh, blue blocks that are on this graph. Those are basically a research organization that has been doing regular probing of port 21 to see if there are exposed FTP servers out there. 
mostly what we're looking at here is where the red arrow is highlighting the fact that there was a large spike in activity, and that was uh, a consequence of a specific address in China that performed that uh, scanning activity. So that was the reason that uh, port 21 jumped up significantly in the top 10 uh, ports is that uh, activity that took place there. And then last item here, scan probes on port 53413 UDP. As it showed on the pie chart, it actually had gone down in rank, uh, but that pie chart is actually based on yesterday's summary data. True, yeah. As of today, uh, it has spiked right back up to what I would describe as almost its new normal, which is on the order of about 18,000 or so sources on the closer to 19,000 sources scanning. So it's a significant number of devices that are doing that scanning activity. And if you recall, this is one that was associated with the Netis uh, home routers, a Chinese-made device. It's available in the United States, however, and um, but more popular in Asia. And uh, on that port, it's possible to actually uh, inject uh, scripting in, for example, to download a file and have it execute that file, which is consequently causing these devices to become part of a botnet. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech channel. It's on YouTube. And it's also available on, as an audio podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. And this is recently updated. Our handle is at attbusiness. And so uh, our security activities have been combined with the, uh, the broader ATT business activities. You can follow some of the activities on that uh, Twitter handle. And uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Jim Clausing, for joining today. Thank you, John Hogaboom. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.